0: Hello everyone, this is Project Auto Collective. Today we are presenting Shenzhen, Sharing and Shanzhai, a conversation with David Lee on the perception of ownership, authorship and identity in design. With the growth of businesses that profit exclusively from the ownership and licensing of product patents it is easy to start asking ourselves how and if the obsession to own ideas is really positively contributing to the design industry. The constant litigation process over the protection of IP, otherwise known as intellectual property, which has become somewhat of a norm for Europe and the US, is turning into its own market. Able to drain immense resources from this industry and waste massive amounts of time, time that in a parallel reality, the manufacturing ecosystem of Shenzhen, China has a very different perception of. The practice of copying products, a practice also referred to as Shansai in China, is something many cultures have grown to consider distant and at times even criminal. But how foreign are these countries to copying? And is copying really such a bad thing for the future of design? David Lee, founder of the Shenzhen Open Innovation Lab in Shenzhen, China, will guide us through some of the unspoken history of copycat culture and its strong connection to industrial development, innovation, and a different way to look at this industry.
1: When we talk about the protection of IP, it's really just covering the way of doing things. It doesn't cover idea. The IP protection only extended to the implementation of the idea, not the idea itself. Design, that's the design pattern system, kind of look and feel thing but that's actually pretty hard to litigate. I mean, Apple and Microsoft went through a decade of litigation on um, look and feel. And as for technology, it the, the concept of technology doesn't get protected. Uh, the implementation of the technology, uh, they get protected by the IP regulations. So just want to make that clear. And I think European and the US has been a little bit for, further down the road. And one of the ideas, one of the, the things starting to get pushed is this very strong IP protection. Try to use the, under the name of IP, try to cover everything. To the extent is the there are a lot of economists is starting to talk about IP as this kicking away the letters. Once the, the country gets there, you kick away the letters of how development works. Uh, and so you continue to push the developing country down, say, okay, well, you cannot do that, you cannot do that, you cannot do that. And that's the, that has been echoed by uh, a lot of academics. Uh, Noam Chomsky has a great speech on this status quo protection systems just to protect the incumbent interests. That, that's actually pretty good research uh, coming out of the Germany uh, in terms of the, the early days of the German industrialization. And they actually contribute that rapid growth to a very weak IP protection at that time in Germany. And in the U.S., it's of course famous of actually passing uh, to encourage copying. The the first copyright law uh, passed in the U.S. actually talks about you have to be a U.S. citizen to hold copyright and patents in the US and the implication of that is the, if you go to Britain, if you go to Germany at that time, try to buy and smuggle a industrial machine of our products into the US, you are free to copy it and claim it as a rightful owners to the products. That was actually in the history of all the country was celebrating their booming times of innovations and industrializations. So, that part of it is actually very well summarized by Charles Dickens, uh, his book called American Notes. Uh, just when the story gets told today, uh, they kind of very much downplay uh, the entire Sanjay and Kabi period of the countries, because we have to switch the narrative. And I think in a lot of places, uh, we see that the history uh, reoccur in the evolution of the industrial system. Uh, well, I mean, I guess sitting in London, that's where the Industrial Revolution gets started. But even back then, the, the, the IP protection law came, uh, I think, probably decades after the Industrial Revolution. So we see the early evolution of Germany, uh, which copies everything from, from Britain. At that time, that's actually a very funny origin story of the term made in Germany. So right now, when we see the the term made in Germany, it means precision. It means engineering. It means beautiful design. That's kind of perception to it. But the real origin of the term is the when Germans starting to copy the industrial system from Britain, they are making that they're doing a terrible job. They are the terrible copies, that the quality is poor. So, the, the British Parliament decided to pass a law to mandate every product has to carry the country of origin. And that's where the term made in Germany comes from. And of course, it, it's also interesting, it's, the, it's written in English. If it's uh, originated to be proud of the German production, it should be in Germany. So, the perception of made in Germany evolved over time. So the story gets repeated in the 60s. That's made in Japan. In the, the, the 70s, 80s, it's made in Korea, made in Taiwan. But after all this time, right now, made in Japan means this innovative concept. And right now in China, I think we just went through that whole decades of accumulation over simply over 20 years.
0: As David states, Perception has been key to shifting the way we think about different manufacturing realities. And with the period of rapid development of Western Europe, the US and Japan getting further into the past, we risk forgetting altogether that this is a cycle that repeats and that copying, or we could say sharing, is a necessary part of the process of development. Now, in the Internet age, places like Shenzhen are following this cycle. But this time, they are not only contributing in shifting the global perception of their productive identity but also, and more importantly, in creating a new way of interpreting the culture of ownership and openness.
1: Part of the, where we are in Shenzhen is the, that perception is evolving, uh, especially in the past decades. Uh, we started to do research on Shenzhen in around 2010. Uh, and back then, I mean, friends are joking about like, why are you going to Shenzhen to find innovations? It's just a sweatshop of cheap labor making iPhone. Uh, there's no innovation there. And a decade after, Shenzhen is this cutting-edge innovation hub, home to Huawei, home to the most innovative startup in China, the Silicon Valley of power. And over that decades, uh, nothing really changed in terms of its practice in Shenzhen. It's the that shifting of the, the global perception. But comes to Shenzhen, uh, we have the the interest of living in let's say 1900 Germany, uh, 1950 Japan or uh, 1970 Korea where this rapid industrialization is bringing opportunity and everybody is excited about it. And for Shenzhen, this period is developing really, really fast. Shenzhen is a young city. I mean, 40 years ago, uh, Shenzhen is a collection of fifteen fishing village, about three hundred thousand people. Today, Shenzhen give or take, we are metropolitans of somewhere between fifteen to eighteen million people. We produce ninety percent of the global mobile phone, seventy five percent of the global mobile brands, uh, headquarters in Shenzhen, and because of that rapid developments, so we have very interesting text in terms of the concept about the IP. Uh, I mean it's starting with this very rapid everybody copy everything's error and because the the opportunity was so great and the business built on top of it grows so rapidly. Conceptually uh, in Shenzhen is the this this ideas of the sharing is profitable. You make something and everybody starting to find their place in this layer of system. So going from design all the way to production uh, and that creating very interesting practice in here. People here are not as eager to look at this from the legal perspective. It's interesting is the, if you look at the pattern firing of I mean, the international patent firing in technology last year, Shenzhen is probably ranking top three in terms of the number of international patent we got in the city. Um, but that's a very, very small litigation in terms of the IP here because for the past 30 years, it's building up to this very profitable business in terms of sharing. By the time you finish with the lawyer and court, the product cycle has already over, so it's much better concentrating on looking at the the opportunity now uh, rather than getting dragged back on the uh, on the litigations. Yeah, the lawyer is not the most interesting people to hang out with. So
0: <laughs> the accelerated speed from design to manufacture in Shenzhen seems to somehow resolve ownership problems. The market moves too fast. There's no time to feel possessive. And everyone knows that if you want to get something done faster, ask for help. Sharing is profitable is a mantra that supports a different way of working in Shenzhen. One that strips away selfishness and allows for an open ecosystem of ideas and implementation that doesn't aim to benefit any single person or company, but everyone who contributes. It would be easy to think that in the middle of this thriving system, designers would have more competence and knowledge of the technologies being developed around them but it is in the very concept of sharing that we see new possibilities in the distribution of knowledge and expertise.
1: The, the interesting part is the designer in Shenzhen, when you talk to them, uh, they are not any more knowledgeable about technology than designers overseas. Actually, in most cases, the Shenzhen designers are not as proficient in terms of the, their knowledge of the underlying technology themselves. The reason for that is the the entire system is cooperative. So there's their business who does different parts of the products. So when we thinking about uh, electronic products, we had the engineering track and then we have the design track. And traditionally you have company trying to do things from scratch. So I recruit the engineering team, I recruiting the design team. And then that's the the constant fighting between the design and engineering for the next 18 months. So both sides had to be proficient with each other's uh, language in order for the fight. But in Shenzhen, because this delivery testing the market and then iterate kind of the process, uh, engineering firms starting to specialize in say, okay, well, they are anticipating what the designer might need. Uh, and they are able to tell the designer what they do in terms of the designer's language. And they have variety of the, the component ready. And the designer just have to pick it up and try to put it into their design and go through a couple quick iterations with the engineering firm. So I think that kind of working mindset is making the big difference uh, between uh, whether or not designer itself has to be proficient. In technologies. We also benefit from the scale we have in Shenzhen. Shenzhen makes 90% of the global electronics. So on the design side, there's about 4,000 industrial design houses, about 130,000 working industrial designers. And on the engineering side, which we call solution house, in Shenzhen, there are give or take about 5,000 solution houses, and that side is about 100,000 engineers. So it become very comfortable. Being a designer in Shenzhen is the, I want some functions. I'm thinking about some function I want to deliver in my electronics. I can easily reach out to solution house I'm working with and say, okay, well, is this possible? And if you cannot do that, any one of your friends who's running the shop is specializing this audio products, mobile phone, smartwatch, they get specialized in that way. And then it opens up a lot of the opportunity for designers. Uh, now they can look at this in abstract, say, okay, well, I need a uh, smartwatch functions. Don't have to get very technical detail. So kind of interesting for us to observing when we have international designer come in and visit and try to work with the uh, designer firm here. And it's typically the international designer who knows a lot about electronics and chips. And so the Shenzhen designer is like, I don't know, but let me call my friend.
0: In 2017, the Shenzhen Open Innovation Lab collaborated with the British Council for a makers-in-residence program, where 10 makers from Shenzhen visited the UK and 7 UK makers visited Shenzhen. This revealed some of the interesting differences between these two realities.
1: Uh, one of the most interesting things is being in Shenzhen, when we announced the program, we have quite a few of the industrial designers set up. Uh, and when they come, we talk to them and we're like, okay, well, you need to prepare a deck to introduce yourself when we go over. And we have two of these uh, designers in their early 30s. They come coming with a deck of about 150 pages. About 120 pages of them are every product they have bring to the market. This is designer in their early 30s. And if you think about this, typically if you've met uh, product designers in London, in their early thirty, If they are lucky, they probably have two products they ever bring to the market. And we had all these young designers who's coming in with a hundred products in their 10 years career. And that speaks to the uh, the rapid development, that speaks to the freedoms to miss and match product. And that also speaks to the ecosystem we have. So, because of this concept of sharing is profitable and open is profitable and cooperation is the business. So everything's starting to come into layer and everybody gets specialized.
0: If a collaborative approach stimulates a more rapid output that ultimately benefits everyone participating, the question on why realities such as Europe or the US are struggling to associate with this system becomes relevant. Why is there still such a strong preference to continue using the same traditional methods of in-house designing and engineering whole products from scratch? Why is embracing the idea of sharing is profitable still so uncommon? It is not only on the philosophical approach, but also in the business model that some of the underlying structures that support these differences are particularly evident.
1: So I think a lot of the European American firm has been used to doing this on the conceptual side. They are, they are they're trying to propose ideas. They are trying to get the conceptual design. And uh, 9 out of 10, things never becoming a products. So uh, the business model is built by the hour. So that tends to be this business practice of having a much longer design cycle. So when you work as design as a consulting, then it has the need to a very strong uh, branding. You want people to look at the product say it's awesome and be able to name its designers. That's good for the next round of business. When in Shenzhen, uh, the business model is different. Everybody wants to ship it today. So company work with design house, uh, not to get concept, but just to say, okay, well, we want to ship it today. So the design house becoming very rapid in terms of their design, iteration and uh, delivery of the products but in that business model you cannot build by the hour so they get a they get a small upfront design fee uh, as well as the uh, profit sharing from the shipping products so the the shipping product we are looking at um, i mean tens of hundreds of thousands of units and being part of that uh, as a business When the business is running, it's cheaper for me to have an idea, prototype it, put it into production, make 5,000 units, and put it on the market to receive the market feedback. Cheaper for me to do that than hire a design consulting firm running through the entire design thinking process for six months and trying to figure it out whether or not there's a market for it. But the practice here is, well, the customer cares more about whether or not your design is shippable, and the business focus is on if I make it shippable, that's the, the growth of my business. And in this area, it's about being part of this web of uh, relationship, build your own reputation. The factory gets used to working with certain designers because they already know each other. They work well together. Uh, and you have the reputation of be able to turn the concept into a producible product fast. And that's why they are known. They are less about attaching their name to the final products uh, rather than building their professional reputation among the ecosystem. If, if you do two products in 10 years, you uh, gets very obsessed about attaching your name to the product. But when you do a product a month, you're probably too busy to care. <laughs>
0: Such an obvious lack of attachment to the output of a career of work is in massive contrast to that of young and seasoned designers in Western contexts, and almost renders the work of Shenzhen designers seemingly authorless or anonymous. It is in this environment of non-individualistic design practice, of freedom from the need to market an individual's name, that we see fertile ground for white label products. These are products that are designed and produced without a label, a brand, or a name, disconnected from the identity of their designer or manufacturer. This allows for external companies to have easier access to technology as not only single components, but entire products can be purchased, rebranded, and adapted to different geographical and economic contexts. Accelerating the distribution of technology in a more adaptive manner.
1: Uh, White Label is really a practice emerging out of this very uh, rapid access, very open access to manufacture, to production, and to technologies. We are a city of productions. Uh, when things get iterated, gets produced, they are out there. But how to adopt this generic products into a different geographic region, different uh, market vertical, then that's whole other group of people who's doing it, whole other group of company who's doing it. And the white label make them available and then the branding comes in and say, okay, well, I can brand this, I can brand this. This look is good for my market. And so we bring up the, uh, the whole products as, the, as part of the business component. And then branding is separated from the, the physical hardware. I was in Ethiopia in 2019 so it's very interesting market that the market right now assemble about 60% of the mobile phone use in Ethiopia uh, and on the market, about 40% of the mobile phone are shipped from the local brand. And that's actually the characteristic of this whole uh, white label, what the white label enable. People in this practice, they figure out the same way we have figured out in Shenzhen is the but if I, bring, if I take the white label the, uh, in terms of branding, in terms of small modification to the functionality, even color, even uh, small modification to the, com- to, the, to the part, to the look, uh, I have a better chance to compete with this more generic brand from outside.
0: As the Shenzhen approach and story is shared and repeated in countries all over Africa, Southeast Asia, and slowly in Latin America, We started wondering how quickly this approach was going to change the countries that differ so greatly in approach, such as the ones in Europe and the US. But when we asked David how long he thought it would take for the open approach of Shenzhen to become global, we realized quickly how our question was a clear indicator of a shared blindness in the Western design industry.
1: When we look at this, that's how 70% of the global population is receiving their product. 70% 70% of the global population is in terms of the electronics, that's how they get digitized. That's how they get access to the internet. So if we're starting to look at this, it's not this kind of culture is waiting to be spread from the city of Shenzhen. We made 90% of the global electronics and majority of them is made in these fashions. So I think globally that's already a norm. And it's I think it's for the designers and engineers and entrepreneurs in Europe and US to come to terms, that's actually the global norm. And to rethinking about how do I participate in it? Uh, because one of the things to look at is the, there's a very high rate of unemployment in terms of the young designers, Designers in their twenties, even the early thirties. Uh, it's high unemployment across the board in the, I think in European countries. One of the reasons for that is the, the design gets so attached to the name. So now you get all the famous designers are in their 60s. And now people live much longer. The young designer doesn't really have an opportunities to climb up the letters uh, to that point. But coming back is also the ideas of launching new products. The young designers become so doctrinated into this big name kind of things. And then having the ideas of the, if I design this, this is going to be global. We are starting to work with several plays in terms of the low speed electric vehicle. Uh, That's another fun stuff coming out of China, quite able, huge quantity, interesting. So it was pretty easy for the concept for our partners in Africa to say, okay, great. Now I can have an electric vehicle with my logo on it. And they are able to develop business. Europe is actually a great place to launch in the vehicle uh, with the best regulation for low speed. But when we talk to them, it's like, uh, they're still quite not sure how to deal with this uh, opportunity. It will take time. They are starting to have an interesting small project here and there who gets it. There's a company called LEV, it's based in Rotterdam. So they have already launched in the vehicle. And I think there's one also in Barcelona, but there are small pocket of people who already getting the ideas of leveraging the white label and leveraging the, the open supply chain here uh, to help them to speed up delivery. Their focusing is on design, on locality, and on the regional opportunity.
0: As we reach the end of this brief exploration of Shenzhen, its approach and ecosystem, we'd like to conclude by thanking David Lee for his participation and hope that this conversation will initiate many others within and beyond the world of design.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. I mean, one of the reason we have the Shenzhen Open Innovation Lab is really to carry out this kind of conversation Try to go beyond just the, the 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 stereotypical copycat things. Try to showcase this opportunity for a lot of the inspired designer entrepreneurs everywhere. While well, working with a um, couple organization in Europe, uh, slowly, <laughs> but uh, but hopefully with the with conversation like the publication of yours. Uh, we'll be able to reach more people.
0: As a final comment on this feature on the city of Shenzhen, we would like to emphasize our intention to document and share a reality that is too often misrepresented or absent from Western media. The scope of this piece is to not establish what the better system or approach is, but to reveal alternatives that are normally hidden from mainstream narratives. Whilst there are obvious questions on whether the approach presented today is environmentally conscious, it offers us a different way of working and thinking within design, which can help us better understand and envision new positive approaches to the future of our discipline.